You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Welcome. Great to have you here today. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't met personally, uh, well, I'm sorry about that. And uh, hopefully I can meet you uh, soon. Uh, but we sw- I just want to welcome you and say it's really wonderful to have you worshiping here with us today. And uh, we're working our way through this most unique book of the Bible called the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, chapters 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. So what we're doing today is going to bridge parts of two different chapters. And what I want to talk about today is uh, what I think this passage is about. It's about the satisfied life. What does it mean to live a satisfied life that we know something of satisfaction in our life? And this is a uh, really a common and a profound existential question. How, what does it mean to be satisfied in my life? And uh, most every um, encouragement that we receive around us in the world is leading us on a dead-end path. But God leads us on a path to knowing a satisfied life. Um, the singer-songwriter, Warren Zevon, he died of cancer a number of years ago, but after he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, uh, David Letterman interviewed him in a, in a rather poignant interview where evidently they were friends and Letterman just went right at it and asked very uh, honest, provoking questions of this artist, um, musician, who uh, had really a death sentence over, over him that he had cancer and was going to die. And uh, he talked to him and asked him, you know, what it was like and what he was experiencing. And then Letterman asked him this question. He said, you know, based on what you've experienced, what do you know about life and death that I don't know? Right? That's a good question because we're all living, not, most of us not thinking much about it. But uh, Zivon was thinking about it every day as his days were short. And so what do you know about life and death that I don't know? And Zivon's answer was this how much you're supposed to enjoy every sandwich. How much you're supposed to enjoy every sandwich. That is an incredibly Ecclesiastes type of a statement. And that's exactly the point of the passage today. Now, there's more to it than that. God's involved. But, uh, but that's the exact point of the passage today, that really our calling in life before God is to live a life where we know in each moment how much we're supposed to enjoy, and we might add, give thanks for every sandwich. The passage today is a longer passage. We're looking at a longer passage um, because that's the way Solomon crafted it. Beginning in 5.8 and and ending in 6.9, there is this, this passage that is a unit. And we know it's a unit. If you're new to the Bible, this will be helpful to know that the verses, the chapter and verses distinctions were added way later. So when Solomon wrote this, he wasn't writing chapter 5, verse 8. He was, he was just writing a document, okay? And so that document, we have to take our cues from the document. It's like, what are the units? Uh, what are the thought units so that we can focus 
on those. And the passage we're seeing today has very clear thought units, and it's, it's going to be different. Let me just say this is going to be different on the outset, because with a Western mind, we think in a linear fashion. So we think like this, point one, point two, and then the conclusion or the climax of, you know, whatever it is we're talking about. But that's, that's linear along a line. But that's not how Solomon wrote this passage. He wrote this passage in a structure that looks more like a pyramid. We have a diagram for it. So this is it. He gives an idea, 1, 1A. He gives an idea in, in verses chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. And then he echoes that same idea, 1B. He echoes it in uh, chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 7 through 9. And then he gives a second idea. We get it in chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. And then he repeats that idea and fills it out a little bit more, 2b, uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And then he gets to the center, what the point of the whole passage is, and that is chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. So he gives us point 1, point 2, the whole point, the whole message and so we're ready to sing a song, take communion, and go home. And he goes, wait a minute, there's more. He goes back down and says, point two again, and back down and point one. So since this is a sermon and not just sort of a, uh, a Bible study, since this is a sermon, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present this in the way we would naturally think about it. Because the point of a sermon is to um, get the heart of the passage, the central idea or ideas, and understand how they make a claim upon our lives. So I'm going to preach point 1A, 1B, then I'm going to do point 2A, 2B, and then we'll end with the climax uh, at the end and the point. So what that means is uh, I'm going to read the passages, the beginning and the ending, then the two middles, and then the climax. We're going to do it a little bit out of order. Now, that may sound confusing. We'll talk about it all. It's all the Bible, but it's going to run in a, in a way that allows, uh, allows me to preach it because a sermon is not for information, it's for transformation. So we're going to get the central idea, and we're going to do that by finishing at the top with the climax. So first of all, verses, uh, the first point, 1A, is verses uh, 8 through 12 of chapter 5. Uh, listen to what God has to say to us here in his word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Okay, this is the first section, and the idea of it is found in verse 10. This is the point of this first section, which we'll see again uh, comes at the end of the section as well. And the point is that money can't provide satisfaction. You see it verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So this is the point he's making. Um, if you love money, you will not be satisfied. Money cannot provide satisfaction. But before he gets to that, he has this little thing about systemic uh, unrighteousness, systemic oppression. 
uh, in verses 8 and 9. And he says, look, uh, in verses 8 and 9, he says, uh, the poor are oppressed and they experience injustice, they experience unrighteousness, it's a violation of justice and righteousness, and he says, do not be surprised by the matter. Now, what's he talking about? He's simply saying that the observation of most governments throughout most of history have been about those who have positions of power um, taking advantage of those who don't. And he says, this is how it works, the poor are oppressed. So somebody takes advantage of the poor, and he's got someone or she's got someone over them in charge, and they take advantage of that person and the poor, perhaps. And then there's someone over them that takes their cut and takes their advantage. And he says, this is how typically societies work uh, most commonly throughout history. And it all is traced up to the king. And then he says, here's a good situation. Verse 9, when uh, this is gain for everybody, a king committed to cultivated fields. What's he talking about? Well, he's saying, well, if you have a king who ensures that none of the fields are fallow, but all of the fields are planted and growing, that's caring for the poor. Because under Israel's law, the poor were able to glean from fields. That is, they were able to take uh, from the crops on the edges and whatever fell, they were able to take that and had something to eat. So he says, typically how the world works is people take advantage of the poor, but it's wonderful if all the fields, the king ensures that all the fields are growing because in Israel, that is a provision for the poor. So this is bureaucratic or systemic, uh, systemic greed. All of these people in the bureaucracy are driven by greed, he says. And then in verse 10, he moves to more personal greed, and he said, whoever loves money will not be satisfied. Now, we could apply it corporately and say all those bureaucrats, they're not going to be satisfied by oppressing people and taking what they have. Uh, but he's now shifting to talking to all of us, and he's saying, look, uh, here's the thing with personal greed. If you chase money, it is vanity. It is emptiness. The word vanity we've seen throughout the book means something empty. It means a breath. It's like breathing in the winter, in the freezing air, and you can see your breath. He says that's vanity. It's brief. It's fleeting. You can't grasp it. You can't get a hold of it. And he's saying if you chase money for your life, your satisfaction is going to be like your breath on a cold day, the meaning of vanity. It's going to be you're going to grab and you have nothing in your hand. You will not be satisfied. He says you will never grasp what you're reaching for. That's the thing about chasing money. Possessions, power, security, and stuff and things. You will never grasp what you're reaching out for. And then he gives us a couple of problems with chasing wealth or actually having wealth, potential problems with that. He says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So he's saying, look, if you have more stuff and things, it just creates more consumers all around you. So if you make a ton of money and then you buy a really big house, guess what? You get a maid. And then you get a gardener. And then you get a fix-it guy to maintain all the stuff around there. And because you have so much money, now you got an accountant. And now, because it's complex, uh, you know, and you want to make more, you, you have an investment 
advisor who's going to help you know how to invest all you have. And then guess what? The tax man now wants more of what you have. So you started out with a simple life, and now goods increase, and everybody is eating it up. And it says, what can the owner do but look out and see them with his own eyes? All you can do is look and go, where's all my money going? It's going to pay all these people that are now sustaining my life. So he's saying, if you're going to chase all this, realize it gets complex. And then he gives this example that he says uh, being wealthy can also cause insomnia. Verse 12, sleep is, uh, sleep, uh, sweet is the sleep of the laborer when he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So he's saying, hey, somebody who works with their hands, uh, works hard during the day, uh, at the end of the day, whether they've got a big dinner or not, they're crashed. They're going to sleep, and it's going to be sweet. But the fat cat who's eating fat, uh, you know, a, you know a, a food, fine dining, goes to bed, stomach filled with fatty foods, and cannot sleep. Uh, it could be indigestion, uh, but more likely it's the cares of taking care of all those people and all of what you have. Now, he elaborates this point at the end of the passage, 1b. So look at 6, chapter 6, verses uh, 7 through 9. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So we're still talking about money can't satisfy you. For what advantage is the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, so he says, you work hard, all the toil is for the mouth. You work for food. You work all that you have. And then you, you, know, you try to accumulate something to eat, yet his appetite's not satisfied. So what he's doing here is he's doing the same thing as verse 10. Wealth will not satisfy. And he's saying, in essence, in the context of wealth, it's, it's chasing wealth for satisfaction is just like your physical appetite. You work, uh, and you work for your mouth. You feed yourself, and you are not satisfied, is what he is saying. Work for food, and then you're hungry again. The same experience is for the person who hungers after wealth. Verse 9, it's better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What's the sight? It's the better is what I can see in front of me. So it's better to be satisfied with what I have, the sight of the eyes, than the wandering of the appetite, thinking that I'll be satisfied by something I don't have, wandering for something that I can't see, desiring something that's not in front of me. He says, if you live that way, uh, then that is vanity and a striving after wind. If you are not satisfied with what's in front of you, the sight of your eyes, and you're always dreaming and scheming to get something that's not in front of you, but is out there, it is chasing wind, and you never are able to catch the wind. You're always chasing. So it's the exact same point. You see how these are the exact two same ideas. Money doesn't satisfy it's a chase. It's a striving after wind. It just never gives you what you want. You can eat uh, breakfast this morning. If you ate breakfast, you eat breakfast, and maybe you're satiated right now, but by noon or one, you're going to be hungry again. And he says, same thing with money. You got what you want. You may be satiated for a moment, but you're going to want something else. John D. Rockefeller, uh, who lived in the 19th and early part of the 20th century. He was the wealthiest man of his day. Some say the wealthiest man ever by today's numbers uh, in our country. 
Uh, he owned Standard Oil. At one time, John D. Rockefeller owned 90% of all the oil in the United States. Now, this is we're using more now than they did then, but still, 90%. That was all broken up, and he wasn't allowed to keep that. But 90% of all the oil, that's how wealthy he was. And one time, he was asked, how much money does it take to make a person happy? And his answer was, a little more. A little more. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Money will never satisfy. Goods, things, investments will never satisfy. We will always look for more. If you try to find satisfaction in your portfolio, in your income, in your savings, in your house, your car, your clothes, your vacations, your expensive hobbies or adventures, you're always striving after the wind. Okay, so that's it. Money cannot provide satisfaction. His second idea, which sounds related but it's a little different, is that money can't provide enjoyment. It can't provide satisfaction, and it ultimately can't provide enjoyment. And by enjoyment, he means taking pleasure in what you have. More specifically, taking pleasure in what God has provided. Um, money can't give you the enjoyment of taking pleasure in what God has provided. He illuminates this point with two stories. He tells two stories of two different guys. So the first one are gals. The first one, well, I guess these are guys. He says he. So the first one is chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. And uh, this is what he says. The word enjoyment's not in here. It's in the parallel passage, but the idea is in here. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil and that he may carry away in his hand, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him? who toils for the wind. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Okay, so here's a guy. He makes money, and he says, the, the word uh, that uh, Ecclesiastes describes it is he says, um, the riches were kept by his owner to his hurt. So what he's saying is this guy made money, and he hoarded it. He did not use it. He did not enjoy anything that it could provide. He just hoarded it, and then he lost it all in a bad venture. So I don't know if he made a bad deal. We don't know what it was, but something happened, and he lost everything. He never used it, and then he lost it all, and he has a son, and he has nothing to give his son when he dies, and uh, so he basically says, look, this guy, because he held on to everything rather than used it to some of it to enjoy, some of it to serve others, uh, to glorify the Lord with what was provided him. Uh, he says he came to nothing. And then Solomon uses this picture. He came into the world with nothing. He leaves the world with nothing. So what gain was this guy that just sat on a pile of resources and never used them or enjoyed them? A matter of fact, he is left alone. It says the result of this guy's life is that he eats in darkness. So in Hebrew culture... The meal was a time of relationship. It was a social thing. So to eat was to engage with others. He says, this guy, basically the lights are off. This guy's eating all alone. This is his life. 
the, utter, the picture of an, uh, the opposite of enjoying his life. He's eating alone in darkness. He's angry. He even has sickness for some reason. Uh, but this is just a guy who has held on, has been greedy, has not enjoyed what he had or what he could give, and ultimately he ends up empty. It's a warning. Now, the next passage is, is the parallel passage, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. So this is 2b. And here, uh, he tells us about enjoyment more clearly, uses the word. There, it, well, verse 1, is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So here's a guy, at the end he's saying, hey, he didn't enjoy it. You know, he, did he enjoy no good? This guy um, is given wealth, possession, and honor from the Lord. That's what it says. Uh, God gives him this, verse 2. And so that he lacks nothing. Uh, but God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them. He's got all the stuff, but he can't enjoy it. Because that's a gift, just like the stuff. And it, we really get a picture of some guy that would be the most blessed person in society. He says he fathered 100 children. And even if he lived 2,000 years, 1,000 years twice over, even if he lives 2,000 years. So he's, he's saying... What about a guy that has 100 kids and lives 2,000 years? The idea of blessing in the Hebrew culture was children and long life. That's the blessing, a big family and a long life. And so if this guy has all of that, but he doesn't enjoy it, then better off is a stillborn child. Now, that's a shocking comparison to us, and that hits very personally, perhaps, with some in the room who uh, have had a stillborn child. So that's a, it's a shocking reference. But what he's saying is a rich, fruitful, abundant, long life that you never enjoy is worse than no life at all. That's what he's comparing it to. So it'd be better to have no life than to have a life where you have everything and you never enjoy it. So he's making his point, obviously, by a sharp, shocking, he's using a shocking illustration or comparison to get our attention, I think, and to help make his point. He says the stillborn child is never experienced life, never experienced anything. And if you experience much but don't enjoy it, this ultra-blessed guy, this uh, person, it would be better not to have life than to have one and not enjoy it. A long life with no enjoyment, worse than no life at all. That's what he's saying. So point one, uh, money can never give you heart satisfaction. Number two, money and blessings don't provide enjoyment. In this case, he said, God did not give the person the ability to enjoy it. So blessings from God, but also the ability to enjoy them are a gift. And these two, these two ideas, money can't provide satisfaction, money can't provide enjoyment, 
they lead to the ultimate point of the whole passage, which is in 18 through 20. And that's satisfaction and enjoyment. They are the gift of God. So look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God's given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Satisfaction and enjoyment are gifts of God. After telling us what's bad, he now tells us what's good. I've seen what is good, verse 18, what's good and fitting. And he says what's good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to do your work and to enjoy it all as the gift of God. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because he's told us this already twice before. This is a central idea in the book of Ecclesiastes. So just back two chapters in 3.12, in chapter 3.12, he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in his all his toil. That's God's gift to man. Or in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 24, he says, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I said, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So this is what he's saying. He's saying this repeated theme. He's saying the good life is not about chasing abundance because you'll never be able to grasp that. The good life is not about finding enjoyment in something that's out there, allowing your appetite to wander, because that's vanity, that's that's empty, that's fleeting, and you can't uh, experience that. The good life is to find enjoyment as the gift of God, starting with the simplest things in life, eating, drinking, and your work. He says in this passage, verse 18, Uh, He says, enjoy your work, your toil, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So he's saying God has provided for you. You only have a few days. So right now, learn how much you are supposed to enjoy a sandwich. That's exactly what he is saying here. Our days are few. Our moments are passing. And this enables us to experience life as God's design. Life is, we've been saying, life is gift, not gain. Don't be trying to find gain in your heart, trying to grasp your life, trying to find traction for your satisfaction and joy by accumulating something and thinking that's it. He's saying rather, no, you know, it could start with lunch today and sitting around at lunch and realizing what a gift of God this is, what a gift the flavors are, that God could have just made food flavorless, and you could have just gulped down a bland shake to live or something, you know. But God made color, uh, food with colors, beautiful, wonderfully tasting. Each culture coming up with ways to prepare it in various, uh, various ways that are pleasing to the taste and enjoyable. And so he's saying, look, 
uh, enjoy what you have and con con consider that this is the lot. This is his provision. It's about contentment. I, I'm content not when I get what's out there. I'm content in God and in his gifts to me today. That's the solution that Ecclesiastes is giving. Now, when he says enjoy your lot, um, when he says enjoy your lot, I want to be clear about that. Um, he's not saying like that you're to have no ambition in your life, that you're never to pursue anything, that you just wake up and go, wow, this is my lot. He's, he's not saying that. It's, it's not about, uh, you know, what you're pursuing or, uh, you know, what, what's happening in your family or your job. He's, he's not saying have no ambition and never seek to grow and never develop. And he's not saying that. What he's saying is, where do you root your joy? You find your joy in what you have right now. You find your joy in the Lord and what he's given right now. You don't delay your joy until you get the next thing. Because when you get the next thing, then you're going to be looking for the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And you will have a joyless life, is what he's saying. When he says, realize this is your lot, he's saying, this is what God has given you today. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That, that's the lot lines. It's what I have. Um, it's fallen for me in pleasant places. This is what the Lord has given me today. And before him, I want to see what I have today as a gift of God. And I want to see the hand of the Lord. And I love it that he says simple stuff. He doesn't say, you know, enjoy your tremendous accomplishments. Because many of us would go, I don't have those. You know, I'm an average person by, by culture standards. I've got an average life with large swaths of mundane living day to day. A lot of mundane things that aren't exciting and don't appear to be world changing, but they're just what I do every day. And he says, you can find joy in that. That's your lot today. So he starts with these simple things, eating and drinking, which are communal things. And he also says, enjoying your toil. He's saying, find your joy in God today, because if you chase satisfaction and chase joy out there in that person, that accomplishment, that goal, that, uh, that money, that possession, you'll never have joy. He doesn't say, have, don't set goals. He says, don't root your joy in achieving the goal. Root your joy in God and what he's given you today. And that's how we live a joyful life. In 2002, Sheryl Crow had a hit song trying to find these various places with Ecclesiastes-type thinking. Uh, and she had this hit song called Soak Up the Sun. Some of you were in junior high when that song came out, or you were dancing to that at your prom, or, you know, you were older. Or you're so old, you don't know that song, but maybe <laughs> it, was, it hit me about midlife when that song came out. And in, 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 the, in the song, she describes her life, which changed radically as she sold more songs, I'm sure. But she describes her life as one where she didn't have very much. You know, and she's just enjoying the goal of her life, very Ecclesiastes-like, is to enjoy what she has and because she didn't have much. So in the song, she says, I don't have digital, which was a big deal, I guess, in 2002. We've got, all got it now, but she was analog. So she says, I don't have digital. I don't have diddly squat. It's not having what you want. It's wanting what you've got. It's not having what you want, it's wanting what you've got. I'm going to soak up the sun, I'm going to tell everyone to lighten up. 
So what she's saying in the song is, look, I may not have much, but you know what? The sun's shining outside, and I can get outside, and I can enjoy that as much as someone who has everything. And I think that's what he would say. What is it? What is that? He would add more. He wouldn't settle with that. But I think Ecclesiastes would say, hey, it's not having what you want. It's wanting what you've got. It's celebrating the hand of God today. And it's saying, you know what? The sun, well, this isn't a good illustration for today, but the sun is outside. I'm, I'm going to get out and thank God for what I have. I'm not going to chase the wind. I'm going to praise God in what he's provided today. I'm going to see his hand, and I'm going to see it as God's gift and the ability to enjoy the outdoors or whatever I'm enjoying, the ability to enjoy it as God's gift as well. Next, he, he does in the passage address the rich to make it clear that he's not opposed to wealth or possessions. People who have means are not to feel guilty about that, like that's a curse or something. It's complicated. There's lots of warnings in the Bible about having a lot. We read some, uh, so it's challenging, but he's not saying that it's bad. He says, verse 19, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his life, and to rejoice in his toil. So those who have a lot are also to receive it from God and to, we would say elsewhere in the scripture, to use it for his glory. He's not saying fix your heart on it. Uh, he said in chapter 2, he gives his own story and said, I, it was miserable. I had nothing, I had everything, but I had nothing. I was grasping the wind, he says. He's already told us about a guy that hoarded it all, and his life is described as eating alone in darkness, miserable. So he's saying to, to put your joy in it or to hoard it is misery, but to enjoy it and to use it in the kingdom of God, seek to leverage what you're provided, the privileges, the opportunities, the possessions, the money that God has given you to leverage them, to serve other people, the scripture would say. And then he holds out this great picture for all of us. I, I never paid attention to this verse before this week. But man, this is a go-to Hebrew verse. Verse 20, for he will not much remember, the person who finds joy in God will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a statement. This person doesn't, if they look back on life, they don't remember all the challenging stuff that happened and all the difficulties that went on the way. Because their life, even through the ups and downs, God occupied their hearts with joy. Uh, would you say that that describes you today? Would you say you're a person whom God keeps occupied with joy? What's your occupation? Occupied with joy, but from the Lord. <laughs> Unbelievable. Solomon doesn't tell us how this occurs. He doesn't tell us how to be occupied with joy, but he gives us a clue. And here's the clue. God is not mentioned in 1A or 1B, 2A, or, well, he's mentioned a little bit, one time, I think, in, in 2A or 2B. But he's only mentioned in these four verses in this whole section. He gives a whole section, and then in the center where he gets the climax, it's the end for us. But where he gets the climax, he mentions God four times in three verses. So he's saying the key is to live a God-centered life. He mentions God in this section, and he said, God gives us our days, verse 18. God gives us wealth and possessions, verse 19. God gives us the gift of rejoicing in our toil, verse 20. God gives us joy in our heart, verse 20. So he's saying the key to living this way is to have your focus on God. All the other section is about focusing on something out there, about something else. But here he are holding on to something out of fear. But he's saying the key is to, to live a life where you are aware 
of God's goodness, and you're even looking for him to give you joy, the power to enjoy what he has provided. Enjoying life is the gift of God. It isn't grasped, it's received. That's the big idea. It isn't grasped, it's received. We're so busy grasping and looking for the next person or thing to make us happy that we're not realizing that instead of doing this, if we would pause and slow down regularly throughout the day and do this, hands open, acknowledging God, receiving from him how different things would be. But it starts with treating everything as gift and then asking for the ability to enjoy it as well. So what do we do with this passage? I want to encourage us to assume two things from this passage. The first one is assume that you need the warning from this passage. This passage is filled with warnings. And if there's any area where we give ourselves a pass, most of us, maybe not all of us, but we say this is for someone else, it's on materialism and consumerism. We compare ourselves to Frisco and we go, oh, no, I'm not materialistic. That's all the rest of the people. Um, And we point to someone who has more and does more than us. And we think, I must be okay. And so we just give ourselves a pass on this, not realizing that Jesus addresses money so frequently. Agreed. Um, Some say he addresses that topic. I've never done a study of this, but I've I've heard, I've read, people say he addresses that topic more than any other topic. And, And the reality is he stands before a group of peasant farmers in the first century, and he says to them, be on your guard. For all types of greed. And yet we live in Frisco and say, well, that's not an issue for me. I'm, I'm so godly, that's just not a problem for me. And uh, that's just not reality. I think th- there are warnings all over Scripture. We need to heed the warning here. A- and I would say, if you would say about yourself, I'm not really experiencing satisfaction in my soul, or I wouldn't say that I'm occupied with God's joy in my life, I don't know why that is. There could be a number of reasons for us to to say that doesn't describe me. But since we're in this text today, I'd start here. And if you're lacking satisfaction in your life, and if you're lacking the joy of God in your life, then I would look here and say, what am I looking for? What is it I think will make me happy? What is it that I need to think then I will be happy? And that will expose where our hearts or are. What am I afraid of losing? The guy who held on to it all. What is it that I'm afraid of losing? Am I content with my lot? More than that, do I enjoy my lot? Am I, am I experiencing the joy of God in what I have? Or am I saying to God, in essence, I really need something else. And when I get to something else, then I'll be content. If our hopes are tied to material provisions, then we must repent and say, Lord, my hope is in you. And help me to enjoy what you've provided. So assume for the warnings directed to us. And here's the other thing I would say, and boy, is this good news. Assume God wants you to experience joy. Joy is, after all, the fruit of the Spirit. God says, if God lives in you, the Spirit of in you, one of the things he's going to produce is joy. He tells us to trust him, to believe his word, to obey, that, our, that our joy may be full, Jesus says. No question God wants his people to experience joy. And, and so this passage, I would say, this is a passage you could pray through. Verses 18 18 through 20. You know, uh, it's good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of our toil. So rather than just praying a blessing over your meal, God, thank you for that. We should thank God. But in addition to thanking him, why don't we pray, Lord, help us to enjoy this. Help me to enjoy it 
at a level that honors you as the giver or sharing a drink with somebody. Lord, help me enjoy this fellowship and this relationship and this communication and this, this gift of this drink before you and our work. Lord, help me not just see that you've given me this job and not only help me glorify you in this job, but Lord, in my work today and particularly the mundane parts of it, help me find some enjoyment in you in that. And that is a gift from you. I do not have that. And I don't think you can pray that one time and be done. We can't have a message where I'll come up here, we're going to pray for you, we're going to lay hands on you and you will always enjoy your life from now on. This church would be overflowing if we had that going. No, no, no it's, I think it's daily. It's throughout the day. Lord, I'm about to go to, uh, to report to my boss. I'm about to, um, I'm about to prepare a meal for the kids. Whatever it is you're doing during the day, Lord, grant me the gift of joy in this. Help me to see you and the privilege of this and help me do it with my heart full and enjoy it. It's throughout the day. It's pray praying without ceasing, Paul says. I think that's firing up prayers throughout our day of gratitude, recognizing God. Lord, help me see you in this. Help me serve you in this and help me enjoy what you've given me to do. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is largely about. Help me put to death joy by pursuing other things and help me experience you. And here's the last thing I would say, not only to pray about this, but here's the last thing I would say about this to help us enjoy what God provides. I think we need to speak about it. And here's why I say that. We are very quick to complain. We go to a restaurant, you pay, and it's not prepared. I said, leave the onions off. I said, well done, medium well, whatever you want. I said I wanted rice with that. I substituted, uh, I substituted an ice cream sundae for the veggies on that. You know, I, I know that's, this, you brought me the wrong thing. So we, we complain, but how quick are we to say, to not only say, Lord, thank you for that, but isn't this good? What a gift. I'm in, what, I, what a what a privilege to have this, and begin to talk about what we enjoy, even our work. What happened at work today that I can, I could see God in and experience, especially if you have, if you work with any Christians, to be able to talk about what that means. I think a big part of enjoying life and having joy is communicating, because it is when we communicate what we're joy, joyful for, it is when we communicate what we're thankful for, it is in when we communicate what we are praising, that really our joy is complete. And this was, this was said in the best, the best I've read on this is from C.S. Lewis in his Reflections on the Psalms. And just a little spoiler alert here, uh, I, we quote C.S. Lewis a lot, um, and we're about to have summer classes. We're actually going to have a summer class on C.S. Lewis this summer. So uh, some of you who are fans will want to attend C.S. Lewis and jump in that class. Um, but this is what he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Okay, so this is what I'm saying, talking about what we enjoy. It is, it's a pointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. So he's saying, see some beautiful vista. Just seeing the beautiful vista isn't enough. What we complete the enjoyment is when we share that with someone else and verbalize it. 
he says. He says, or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So, this idea of recognizing the hand of God, recognizing our lot, our, our regular things of life, little things and big things alike, and then expressing our gratitude to God, but sharing that by pointing out the hand of God to others, that completes the enjoyment. And I want to say we are quick frequently to get someone to complain with us. Can you believe? He said we're quick to find fellowship in complaint. The Bible would say fellowship in the enjoyment of God for that speaking of it completes it let's pray lord we this morning we come to you and thank you for all that you have provided we see it all as a gift from you and we pray today that we would recognize your gifts in a more regular way and we pray not only would we recognize your gifts but we would enjoy your gifts the simplest thing is a meal the simplest thing as a drink the simplest thing is going to work whether it's caring for our home this afternoon or whether it's rising tomorrow morning and going to school or whether it's rising and flipping open our computer if we work from home or going to a job site or wherever we work. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us in our toil to enjoy it. And Lord, would you put to death continually in each of us the lie that says real joy is found in the next thing I get, the next thing I accomplish, reaching the goal I'm chasing. Lord, help us to find our contentment, not in what we can grasp, but in what we have already received from you. We confess our lot is good. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. Amen.